Hi, everybody, and welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. And as always, I want to thank you sincerely for your time and energy and for listening to any episode that you can. As well, I'm wishing you all the very best in the new year and that I hope all of your dreams, goals, and aspirations are achieved in the upcoming year. I must admit that this is my first solo podcast, meaning the very first podcast I have recorded that I do not have a guest. You are going to listen to only me today, so I hope that I bring you an important message or messages and and that you have takeaway value from my solo podcast that I'm going to release today. So just a quick reminder or a uh, refresher about what my podcast is all about. So to set more context for this episode today, I want to share with you what the main aim of my podcast is. Now, I've done almost 200 episodes over the last few years on my Run Your Life podcast, and the main purpose behind these conversations is to unpack the guiding principles that my guests have put into action in their own life to help them achieve the success that they have. Every guest that I have uh, on the show, or every guest that I've had on the show, has a very unique story. And without question, every single one of them have had to overcome many different obstacles on their own journey in life. The themes of mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being are very important to me and play a pivotal role in shaping the discussions that I have with my guests. I love nothing more than to better understand the strategies and tools that my inspiring guests put into action in their own life to prioritize their own well-being in order to optimize their own performance in their chosen field. And despite each guest having a unique journey, there are deep similarities in the way that they approach, many of them approach their life and their work. Many of them apply common strategies, tools, and techniques in a way that allows them to build a strongly resilient mindset and to strengthen the skills needed for them to pursue mastery of their craft, whatever that craft may be. And I feel very lucky and fortunate to have had amazing people on the show, and whether it be an Olympic gold medalist, uh, an NFL star, a Ryder Cup champion, I've had uh, Stanley Cup champions on in the past, best-selling authors, world-renowned performance coaches, top researchers, whoever it is, I can say with full certainty that my guests all prioritize their mental health and well-being in a way that allows them to do their very best work possible to impact the world and make their own unique difference. And I really do cherish these conversations as I learn so much from them. And I must say that it is very easy to have these conversations in the comfort of my own home. It's easy for any of us to learn and connect with others when things are going well in life. And it's certainly a breeze to discuss mental health and well-being when I'm personally in a great place in my own life. As well, it is always much easier to apply certain strategies and techniques to improve or strengthen our own mental well-being and and mental health when everything is humming along nicely in our day-to-day life. But the most challenging thing 
is to actually apply these strategies and techniques uh, when we most need it. And this is the purpose of my solo podcast today, to share my own story and how I have needed to prioritize my own mental health and well-being more than ever and apply some of the exact strategies that I've learned about and unpacked with my own guests. So I'm hoping that others may benefit from knowing certain strategies that they can apply in their own life during times of uncertainty and when they are forced to deal with situations that are completely beyond their own control. And uh, that's the situation I find myself in and that I'm facing right now. And that's the story I'm going to share with you. So what is happening and why am I in this situation? Well, it started off at the end of November. Uh, My wife, Neela, her mother was diagnosed with cancer. Her mother is 85 years old, um, a wonderful uh, person, and uh, has been a very important part of our life. And living so far away, we don't see her very often. Um, You know, during COVID, we hadn't seen her in a couple years, but we were able to get together with her in the summer. And then uh, we flew back to Saudi Arabia, and then uh, we got the news that Uh, She was undergoing some testing, so uh, my wife, Neela, received the news that my uh, mother-in-law was diagnosed with um, a form of breast cancer and needed uh, immediate surgery. And when I say immediate, the healthcare system is pretty bogged down right now, so they were able to schedule the surgery for December 7th. Immediately upon receiving the news, my wife, Neela, said, I have to go back to Canada. I have to be there for my mom. Um, She lives alone. She's going to need somebody there full-time to take care of her. And although Neela has a sister and brother uh, living in Toronto, they um, and they're there to help, of course, uh, Neela felt an obligation to go back so that she could be there 24-7 to look after her mother. So obviously I supported her. Uh, We had planned a winter vacation in Germany and uh, the UK. Um, But of course, uh, we were willing to put that on hold for Neela to go back to Canada. So we arranged her flight, she got compassionate leave from work, and she flew back to Canada on December 1st. Uh, She was so happy to be there uh, to help her mother out in her time of need. And I know her mother was extremely grateful to have Neela there. So we told Neela um, that we were going to still go to Germany and the UK. So we, meaning my two sons, Eli and Ty and myself, uh, we knew that she was going to be really uh, focused on looking after her mom. We wouldn't be able to to stay there because of the the COVID situation, but also just the, the fact that her mother was in recovery mode and and Neela was going to be looking after her full time. So that was the reason why um, we were choosing not to go back to Canada and to go to Germany and the UK. And after a couple days uh, reflecting on it, I thought there's no possible way we can't be in Canada. So I secretly booked flights for Eli, Ty, uh, and myself. I didn't tell Neela because we wanted to surprise Neela in Canada uh, when we started our winter break, which was December 18th. So she thought we were still going to the UK and Germany, but little did she know we were actually flying back to Canada. So how were we going to surprise her? That was the uh, 
the question of the week. Uh, so I decided what I was going to do was to have some festive fun. So I enlisted the support of a good friend, Mark Vatsis, who listens to this podcast. Mark, thank you for going to Value Village and finding that Santa suit, buddy. Uh, Mark found the Santa suit for me, and my plan was to dress in a Santa suit on a busy street corner in Toronto and also enlist the support of Neela's best friend, uh, Denise Rosetto. They've known each other since high school. And uh, I told Denise, no matter what happens, we're going to arrive on December 18th. On December 20th, you were going to have to arrange to go for a long walk with Neela around your neighborhood and then walk by a certain street corner at a certain time and communicate with me when you're about five minutes from that street corner so I can get out there in my Santa suit with the pillows stuffed under my jacket to look like a big Santa. I created a sign that said Santa loves you but also included the name Neela so I could hold the sign up that says Santa loves you and then flip down her name Neela so it would read Santa loves you Neela. So it worked like a charm. It was perfect. It was um, amazing that we were able to pull it off. And Neela was absolutely shocked. She broke down in tears. She couldn't believe that we were there. Some of you listening to this who know me, who are friends with me on Facebook, would have seen the video I posted of the moment. Um, it was a beautiful moment. We were actually all in tears. Uh, very special. So after the surprise, we went back to Denise's place. We had a wonderful dinner, really just a magnificent evening and uh, was really, we were really looking forward to the holidays. And although we wouldn't be able to see Neela every day because she was looking after her mother, we knew that she, she knew that we were there as a support for her and just having us close uh, was important to her. So we went on a few walks the first few days and then Christmas Day, we went over to her sister's place for dinner, and unfortunately, one of uh, the relatives uh, contracted COVID. Uh, they obviously didn't know that they were ill. They uh, were at the dinner, and then they tested positive the next day. So then Eli, Ty, and I tested on the 27th. Eli was unfortunately positive. Ty and I were negative, so Eli went into isolation in our Airbnb and uh, Ty and I stayed in the other part. Um, we gave Eli meals and looked after him, but he was really literally behind a closed door. Ty and I tested again, um, and we were negative. But then around December 29th, we developed symptoms. In my case, I would say a little more than mild. I felt pretty rough for about three days. Ty felt pretty rough too. By January 1st, we had more or less recovered from our symptoms and were asymptomatic. We had to test on January 5th to fly back to Saudi on January 6th. And Neela was actually flying back on January 6th. I had booked her tickets separate, but put us on the same flight back so we could fly back to Saudi uh, as a family. So Neela tested as well on the 5th. She tested negative, which was great, but the three of us tested positive. So we were forced to stay back in Canada, and Neela went ahead uh, back to Saudi and made the trip on her own. So it was a bit sad seeing her off, of course, but I knew that it was important for her to get back. Um, so we isolated for a week, and we tested again on the 12th in hopes of testing negative to fly out on the 13th. Uh, Eli and Ty tested negative, but I was still positive. 
and I wasn't in a headspace to send them back on their own. I didn't want to separate, so they stayed with me the extra week, and um, we tested again on the 19th, and I was again positive, and they were negative, so I knew that I couldn't hold them back. I had to get them back home to Neela. One of the hardest things I had to do was check them in at the Air Canada check-in counter and then say goodbye to them. Uh, that was really hard for me. And that was last Thursday, so that would have been December, uh, January 20th. Sorry. So that's kind of how it all went down. And then I had to book my own Airbnb. So I'm in, in downtown Toronto right now waiting it out. And my test said low-level detection, but it was still a positive test result, so I'm unable to fly. And I have to admit that after dropping them off at the airport and then checking into the Airbnb, never in my life, full disclosure, have I felt such emptiness and loneliness. It's difficult to explain, but a, a deep hollowness, you know, in the pit of my stomach and, and deep sadness. I was alone for the first time in, in eight weeks because they were with me every step of the way, the boys, and they were my companions, and we hung out and we did everything together and bonded so well, and I didn't have Neela at my side because she was back in uh, Saudi. So for about 30 minutes, I literally sat there in silence and fought back the tears. And I was also consumed with deep frustration because it felt so unfair to be in this situation. As crazy as it sounds, it felt like total abandonment, you know, uh, being alone and isolated. And I found myself catastrophizing my situation. And I recognize that there are people that have been impacted by COVID to a much greater level than me. There have been families torn apart. People have lost loved ones. But I, I, I couldn't see that perspective in the moment. And out of all of my learning over the years, all of my reading, all of the deep internal work that I've done, I've learned so many strategies to promote and deepen mental health and well-being. And I've spoken to so many of my podcast guests about these things. So after about 30 minutes, I, I had to almost like metaphorically slap myself in the face to begin to put together an action plan. And the first thing that came to mind was that I needed a mental reframe, which is also known as a cognitive reframe. And there's a quote that I want to share with you right now that I thought about and I actually looked up. And it's this, feel the feeling, but don't become the emotion. Witness it, allow it, and release it. And that's what I did in the moment. I was sitting with these feelings of loneliness and, and isolation and sadness and being overcome by tears. And instead of fighting it off, I just accepted it and reminded myself that, of course, it's absolutely justifiable to feel the feelings that I am and the emotions that I am. And I witnessed them. I allowed them in order to release them and to think with more precision and clarity around what I needed to do. And with these feelings, obviously came a lot of emotional pain, but in acknowledging the feelings and that the feelings were absolutely justifiable to feel, 
it was slightly easier to move forward in that moment. And as I said, I knew that a cognitive reframe was 100% necessary and was something that was completely within my own internal locus of control. So if you haven't come across the term cognitive reframe, most psychological definitions identify cognitive reframing as a psychological technique that consists of identifying and then changing the way situations, experiences, events, ideas, and or emotions are viewed. Cognitive reframing is the process by which such situations or thoughts are challenged and then changed. In the context of cognitive therapy, cognitive reframing is referred to as cognitive restructuring. And in that moment, I reminded myself or, or just let myself think about what was important and four things came to my mind to kickstart the process of cognitive reframing. And the number one thing was that I cannot control external circumstances, but I can absolutely take full action on controlling what I can. Number two was that I had to be very aware of my own internal dialogue or my internal voice in that moment and be aware of the things that I'm saying to myself in order not to catastrophize my own situation further. Number three was to remind myself that I definitely have the internal capacity and skill set to get myself through this challenging time. And the fourth thing was perspective taking. You know, COVID has kicked a lot of people's asses around the world and countless numbers of humans have been so impacted much more than I have. So it was important for me to take on this perspective. And one huge thing that I had neglected over the past month was mindfulness. So I knew that I needed to return uh, to the practice of mindfulness, which reminded me uh, about the work of world-renowned mindfulness expert John Kabat-Zinn. And as I was talking through my frustrations and my anxiety with my wife Neela on Zoom, uh, she's been my rock through all of this. Um, Neela, if you are listening to this, um, you know, I cannot wait to get back to you. But it was Neela who reminded me about the concept of impermanence. And as I was thinking about John Kabat-Zinn's work around mindfulness and the concept of impermanence, one of his quotes came to mind. And I'm going to share it with you now. And the quote is this, Once in a while throughout the day, let go into full acceptance of the present moment including how you are feeling and what you perceive to be happening. Give yourself permission to allow this moment to be exactly as it is and allow yourself to be exactly as you are. Then, when you are ready, move in the direction your heart tells you to go mindfully and with resolution. So revisiting this quote and John's work around mindfulness really allowed me to better accept the impermanence of my situation and to know that this is how it is now, but it will not be like this forever. And in truly accepting this, I was immediately able to stop catastrophizing my situation and to go into action mode rather than let my situation control me. 
And I know that many of the guests that I've been able to interview and have on the show have all been able to accept this idea of impermanence in some way or another, in some shape or form. Whether they use the term impermanence or not, they really are able to um, take on this mindset in their own life in order to get through the bumps and hurdles, obstacles and challenges that they face. So I know that there must be something to it, especially when I need it the most and I need to understand the concept of impermanence the most and apply it in my own life. So I'm going to take the, the next part of the podcast to share three specific strategies that I reflected on and thought that I really needed to apply uh, in that moment, and I'm still applying now. So it's on an ongoing basis over the last week. Uh, and these strategies have helped me to better deal with the impact that COVID has, has had on my own life and how these strategies have helped me to overcome the feelings of loneliness and isolation and allowed me to prioritize my own physical, mental, and emotional health. So I'm really hoping that you can find some takeaway value uh, from these strategies if you're not familiar with them and uh, get curious about them and how they might apply or be utilized in your own life. So the first strategy is called scanning for good, um, also known as being a researcher of good. And it's a strategy that I have presented in countless workshops that I've given around the world. Um, I've presented it to teachers so that they can present it and teach it to their own students. I've presented it to educators and other people around the world so that they can apply it in their own work, their own personal life. And I've, I've talked about it in, in many of the presentations I've given. The strategy scanning for good, as I said, is also known as uh, being a researcher of good. And it comes from the School of Positive Psychology and the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, who is the director of the Penn State Psychology Center and a best-selling author. Dr. Seligman has spoken about the researcher of good strategy in many of his talks and has written about it in depth in his latest book called Flourish, A Visionary New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being. And to give you some more background and context into Dr. Seligman's work, he coined the term being a researcher of good or scanning for the good when he was doing clinical work with many of his patients who suffered from different forms of depression, but in particular, uh, patients who suffered from severe depression in their lives. Now, I want to take this opportunity to rewind even further and go back a few decades to when Dr. Seligman first entered the the field of psychology and medicine. Uh, Dr. Seligman was a clinical psychologist for decades, and he got absolutely fed up with the predominant models of therapy and counseling, overwhelmingly focusing on why people are so messed up. He hated the fact that the focus was always on what was not working in a person's life or what was broken in relation to their mental health. He found it a, an extremely depressing, cynical, and bleak way of looking at a person's life and their problems. He was convinced that there was another way. And 
he genuinely believed that all humans truly want to flourish and thrive in their own lives. And if given the tools and skills needed, they can take greater control of their own life circumstances and capitalize on their natural strengths that they have. Thus began his journey of starting the positive psychology movement and establishing the first school of learning around this way of thinking and learning about human flourishing. So fast forward back to his work with clinically depressed patients. Dr. Seligman taught these patients to begin a daily practice that allowed them to scan for the good in their lives in order to draw more attention to the power of gratitude. Despite being clinically depressed and in some cases living very bleak and dismal lives, Dr. Seligman patiently and compassionately taught them how to look at their lives differently and to recognize any good or any positive things that they experienced each day. This daily gratitude practice had them literally write down, using pen and paper, three things that went well for them that day, or three things that they were grateful for in their lives. He also calls it the three W's, what went well. And to give you an example, it could be as simple as someone held the door open for me at the mall, or I had a great cup of coffee with a friend, and in the case of severely depressed patients who have difficulty getting out of bed at all in the day, it might be something such as they were able to get up and take a shower or go for a short walk. The main idea behind this strategy is to truly scan for the good in our lives in order to better reframe our situation. And to take it to the next level, Dr. Seligman would also have them include not just what went well, but also to find a word that represents that action. So for example, the something that might have gone well would be someone held the door open for me. And then in parentheses, beside that statement that they've written down in their journal, Dr. Seligman would have them identify a word that represents that action. So in this case, someone held the door open for me, in parentheses, the word kindness. Okay, so it was an act of kindness. Or my friend sent me a WhatsApp message today checking in on me. So in parentheses, it might be connection or compassion or friendship. Long story short, what Dr. Seligman and his team found was that through their experiment and applying the researcher of good strategy for just seven straight days, that it caused a shift in the thinking and feeling of his clinically depressed patients. A number of them, after seven straight days of doing this activity, felt a lessening of symptoms related to depression, and in some cases, it caused a profound shift in their own thinking and how they felt. He encouraged his patients to continue this daily practice for weeks and months afterwards, and the results were astonishing. So I'm certainly not trying to downplay how serious depression can be, and that uh, the cure is as simple as doing this daily gratitude practice and writing a few things in your journal. I'm not trying to uh, downplay uh, how serious depression can be, but 
this was a go-to tool in combination with other strategies. For example, maybe the patients were on meds, uh, maybe they were encouraged to be physically active, but it was a strategy that definitely uh, made a difference. So I want to share this story with you about Dr. Martin Seligman's work and uh, the being a researcher of good in our own life, as it has been an, an important skill that I have taught to others and applied in my own life. But as I said earlier, it's always so much easier to apply these strategies when things are going well in our life. When we face circumstances beyond our control or find ourselves in an unfortunate situation, it can be much harder to apply. However, for me in my own uh, current situation, I had to be a researcher of good. And I've spent the last four days really focused on this strategy to remind myself about the good in my life and um, remind myself that I have a great family waiting for me, they, a family who loves me, that needs me back home. I have great friends that I can lean on uh, during this time, and I have leaned on them. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm physically active right now. I've been running between 5 and 14 kilometers each day or going for really long walks. So being asymptomatic, I have gratitude for that, that I'm not sick, that I'm healthy enough to get outside and be physically active. So I just have to keep reminding me of these things. And that is really putting the uh, being a researcher of good strategy into action in my life when I truly need to do it. And it has sincerely helped. So I will put a link to Dr. Seligman's work in the show notes, and I highly recommend buying his book Flourish or downloading it on Audible. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It's a fantastic read. The second thing I wanted to share that has helped me through the last few weeks dealing with COVID is being physically active. So I've been asymptomatic now for almost 20 days. So you can imagine the frustration of continuing to test positive, but, um, you know, really taking initiative to be physically active has truly helped me to feel better mentally and physically. And despite temperatures here in Toronto being very cold, uh, brutally cold at times, snowy and windy, uh, it hasn't stopped me from going for a long walk or going on a long run each day. And... The evidence clearly shows the impact that physical activity can have on our brains, and the neuroscience has clearly shown that physical activity and exercise helps to release higher levels of dopamine and endorphins in our body that have a positive impact on our mental health and well-being. So it was hard in the initial days because it was so cold, and I was just coming out of you know a week of really not feeling that great. And knowing that exercise and physical activity can be the last thing we want to do when we are feeling down or we're not physically well or we're not feeling well emotionally or mentally, it really is important to get moving. And I know this, and this is what I've done. So as I said, I've done runs between uh, 5 and 14 kilometers, and I've gone for really long walks. And I can say with full certainty that it has been my saving grace through this difficult time and choosing to be physically active and exercising is something truly within my own locus of internal control. 
So I'm choosing to move and get active during this challenging time, and it has made a big difference. So if you're listening to this and you're going through a tough time and you haven't been very active recently, I highly encourage you to lace up your running shoes and get out there, even if it's a short walk, a short jog, whatever it is, but just get moving. Uh, Moving into the third thing I wanted to share with you is the strategy of genuinely connecting with others. And I want you to reflect in this moment Think about people in your life, people who who, uh, you're close with, and I want you to think about who in your life really matters to you and makes you feel valued and cares about you and will take the time to support you in your time of need. There is so much evidence around the impact that social connection can have in our lives, especially when we might need it the most. And this is regardless if we're an extrovert or an introvert, we all need to connect with others. And a quick story that I want to share with you is that I have a friend who I speak with from time to time. I won't name the person, um, but I know for a fact that things have not gone very well for them over the past couple of years. So when I check in with them at certain times, I ask them a a very simple question. How are things going for you? And early on, when I was checking in on them, their response was always, hey, I'm living the dream, or everything is great. And this type of response left very little room to have an honest and genuine conversation about how things were really going for them in their life. And one day... After another one of their living the dream responses, I told them bullshit and that I never wanted them saying that again to me because I knew it wasn't true. Don't waste my time. You know, I'm checking in on you. Don't waste my time. And I wanted to tell them that the reason why I was checking in on them was that I I know that they're struggling and I wanted to remind them that I was always there for them when they wanted to have an honest conversation about how things were going. And I must say that since that time, we've had some great discussions, some very deep and honest discussions about mental health and well-being, and they've shared very openly with me what they are going through. And also, when I've been down, I've been able to share back with them what's going on in my life. So, you know, and the reason why I share that story is, It's very easy to get caught up in our own negative loops of thinking and never reach out to others when we are most in need. And when I think of this, a quote that comes to mind for me is a quote from best-selling author Brene Brown. Brene's work is awesome. She's an amazing author. She's written several best-selling books. You can just Google her name. Brene, B-R-E-N-E, Brene Brown, and uh, she's done such amazing work. She also has a great podcast called Unlocking Us that you can find on any of the major podcast players, but a quote that comes to mind when I think of Brene's work and I think of um, the story I just shared about my friend is the power of vulnerability, and what Brene says is, daring greatly means the courage to be vulnerable. It means to show up and be seen, 
to ask for what you need and to talk about how you're feeling and to have hard conversations. So for me, over the past couple of weeks, I have absolutely taken action on leaning on some good friends who I know that are there for me during this challenging time. And as hard as it can be to truly open up about what I'm feeling, I know that I can share with them what I'm going through and how it has impacted me both mentally and emotionally. And uh, over the past couple of weeks, I've been able to reach out to several of them on WhatsApp, on Zoom, and in person. And uh, I've been lucky to have a couple of them come and meet me and to go out of their way to come and see me. We've gone on long walks and uh, have had some great chats. And uh, the fact that they went so far out of their way to come and see me really meant a lot to me. And of course, when we were walking, we were socially distanced and safe. But um, I share this because the act of reaching out and connecting to those who matter can and will make a difference when we are most in need. People really do care and they want to help. And uh, I've been on the receiving end of that. I've had lots of friends reach out to me on WhatsApp Uh, to connect with me and to check in. And uh, I know they care and that does make a difference. So I hope anyone listening to this who may be going through a difficult time has a support network in place who who they can access. And if you feel you do not have that support network, just take the chance to connect with at least one person in your life. Take the risk, reach out to them because it will make a difference. The last thing I want to leave you with is the work of the amazing and inspiring Dr. Jim Lohr. So Jim Lohr has done a ton of research around the power of storytelling and the power of personal narrative. He's worked with 17 world number ones in their sport over the past four decades, but not only people in sport, he's worked with Uh, top CEOs, um, lots of different people around the world. And he has helped them to understand that being critically aware of our own inner voice during times of struggle and times of challenge is a very important step forward toward building a more empowering narrative. And there is a fantastic quote. It's probably one of my favorite quotes. I've shared it on my podcast before. It's been up on our chalkboard wall back in uh, our entrance area of our house in Saudi Arabia for the last six months, even more, eight months maybe. And this is what the quote says. The power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. How well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller. And the stories we tell ourselves are our reality. So I always revisit that quote when I want to remind myself that the things I'm telling myself matter a lot. And in particular, the things I'm saying to myself in my present situation, my present circumstances, matter a huge amount. So creating a narrative that is pessimistic or depressing or littered with frustration and anger cannot even be an option right now for me. I need to continue to create an internal narrative that puts me in the driver's seat 
an internal narrative that is filled with hope and continues to serve me in a way that allows me to move forward in productive ways, especially during this time of uncertainty and challenge in my life. So I ask you all listening to this right now to take a few moments to reflect on your own inner voice and the stories you tell yourself. How kind are you to yourself? Are you very critical and harsh on yourself? Or is your internal voice one that shows deep compassion for yourself? And as Jim Laura says, our internal voice is the master storyteller. So are the stories you're telling yourself helping or hurting you? Are they healing and supportive? Or are they filled with fear, anxiety, worry, and doubt? Building an empowering narrative is a skill that we can all develop when we put certain strategies into practice in our life. To learn more about Dr. Lohr's work, you can check out his latest book, Leading with Character, or listen to the podcast that I was lucky enough to record with him uh, several months back. Uh, The links to the book and the podcast are in the show notes of my episode today. So in closing off this episode, and being a researcher of good, I'm eternally grateful to my listeners who take the time to support my podcast and believe in it. Um, This podcast means a lot to me and has been my own personal project over the years. And the only thing I ever ask my listeners is that if they feel that this podcast or my podcast or episodes will benefit others who they know, uh, please share it. That's all I ask. And I have tremendous appreciation for you doing so because uh, I put a lot of work into the podcast. As well, yesterday was my birthday. And when I reflect back on my life, it was the first birthday that I've ever spent alone. But maybe this conversation today was a birthday present to myself as it helped me to gain more clarity uh, around my present life circumstances And maybe this episode is a present to others who may need to hear certain messages that I've shared on the podcast today. Who knows? What I do know is that I do not feel lonely or isolated, and I'm truly grateful for any contribution that I can offer the world through my podcast and my work. So again, thank you for listening. And I want to end off with a great quote that my beautiful wife Neela always holds so close to her heart and she shares with uh, others through her own amazing work. The quote is from L.R. Nost, uh, who is an author, and the quote is this, life is amazing and then it's awful and then it's amazing again and in between the awful and the amazing, it's ordinary and mundane and routine So breathe in the amazing, hold on through the awful, and relax and exhale during the ordinary. That's just living a heartbreaking, soul-healing, amazing, awful, ordinary life, and it's breathtakingly beautiful. A very special thanks also to my wife, Neela, and my two boys, Eli and Ty, for consistently checking in on me every day. As well, uh, special thanks to all those who've reached out privately to me, checking in on me as I deal with my current situation. 
And although I won't name you all, you definitely know who you are. You matter to me, and I'm grateful to have you in my life. So all the best, folks, and uh, thank you for listening to my solo podcast today.